Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. That's exactly the uh, serious purpose of, uh, of his books. He, he's trying to get us to cast off all the isms, all the ideological isms, capitalism, socialism, whatever it is, Catholicism, uh, communism, whatever it is, to actually put them aside, which is no easy matter because we're, you know, we're, we all love causes and we all want to get involved in these things. But until you do that, you can't possibly reach what he regards to be the thing, which is conscience. Good morning, everyone, and welcome or welcome back to our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. Today, we'll be talking about an Italian author and journalist, Giovannino Guareschi, and about what we can learn and understand about today's ideologized word through the stories that he wrote. And we will learn, I think, about his lovely Don Camillo, protagonist of many of his books and stories. Some of you may have heard already of a book, or better, of a series of books titled The Little Word of Don Camillo, but I am pretty confident that many of you will buy them after listening to this short episode. So to talk about Guareschi, about Don Camillo, and I think, if I can guess, about charity, I'm today joined by another author, Mr. Piers Dudgeon, and I hope I pronounced it correctly. Hello, Piers, and thank you for uh, thank you for accepting our invitation. Hi, Mariana. Yes, you did well. You did very well. Pleased to be here. I'm here more as a publisher than as a writer today, but I do write little prefaces to the beginning of each of these books and know the things pretty well. Yeah, Piers, if you don't mind, you know, could you also tell us and our audience a little bit more? Like, I know that. You're mainly an author of biographies, but what else? What do you think is your salient traits for our audience to know? Well, first and foremost, I'm a publisher, always have been. 53 years in the business, I started publishing. Perhaps the closest theme to Hureski is the spirit of place and people. And that became a major theme for me in my publishing in the 80s and 90s. And although I discovered him as a 10-year-old boy, I came back to him really on account of that and on account of my reading for the biographies, the research that I was doing, reading a lot of Robert Graves and The White Goddess, very important uh, for anybody that's writing about authors. And I only really write about authors or composers or people like that. And the link between inspiration and what they write okay that is my that is my absolute main theme so robert graves and the psychiatrist uh Carl jung and the mystic meister eckhart those would probably be my three major forms of how i approach subjects and as a practitioner of zen <laughs> hence my article that you read Wow. Uh, yeah, no, I had, I had no idea that that was the selection also like that you would write about authors. I didn't. And, and I mean, the names you mentioned are immensely interesting. I think one book that seemed to be one of the most famous that you published was about the author of Peter Pan. Is that, am I right? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. M most recently. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was about to ask you how you choose the people 
that you write about, because that maybe could tell me something about how you chose Goresky. But you can get, I think we will get to that inevitably when, you know, when you tell me the story of your, I just wanted to say that I encountered your name exactly as you were mentioning for the first time, thanks to a short article that you wrote on the European Conservative. Uh, We had, I think two years ago, the editor, the mind behind the European Conservative here on an episode uh, with us, Mario Fantini. And I I just want to say it because I think it's one of the best existing magazines in print. I haven't bought a subscription for my brother in Japan and now he receives it there. And so I I just want to link to that publication in our episode and invite everyone to subscribe because the kind of articles one can read there can be read nowhere. And your article is a short biographical sketch of this author, Goreski. And what I wanted to say is like it, it, the reason I loved finding it there was that for years, uh, and at least since I came to the Austin Institute three years ago, I wanted to get the students, undergraduates and grads that come here to read Goreski because I thought there were lessons that were incredibly valuable for them. Yeah. But I had no idea whether Goreski could have been appreciated by a a non-Italian and maybe not even from his region, like people uh, for an audience that was not the same. I had no clue what the English translations were like and if they were good ones and readable ones. And so this is to introduce also like why you're here, even though we hadn't met before and how, you know, I got in contact with you and why I'm interested in talking about the topic. But so now let's get to you. What made you interested in Giovannino Guareschi, what made you, I think, love him to the point of like dedicating so much of your work to his writings? Yes, yes. Well, it, it began, the first time I read him was I was 10 years of age. And the, the amazing thing about this author is that you can read him at 10 and you can read him at 100 and all the years in between that. There are so many different levels on which you can read him. I was ill in bed. My mother gave me a copy of The Little World of Don Camillo, Mondo Piccolo, as it was called in Italy. And I wasn't a great reader at 10, you know. I mean, I I think girls are at 10, but boys didn't seem to be uh, readers in my day, at least. But I was ill and I I eventually got to it and I was absolutely transfixed. It was a bit like I was on the level of Asterix the Gore, if you know what I mean. Now, that came seven years later, so don't make no mistake about that. There was no copying at all in terms of style. But he has this upper level of just knockabout humour and often violence. And also the underneath, you have the history. Make no mistake again, Kureski is not about writing history books, as we'll come to what he's actually writing about. But to a boy of 10, he writes so well. And those uh, at that stage, those translations, I had no idea what they were leaving out, and they did leave out an awful lot. But that's another story. They were absolutely feeding that level of things, and I was transfixed by it. And so were many other people. I mean, since I've, I've been publishing these books uh, since 2012, 2013, one a year all the way through, I have had many, many letters from fans who, like me, read when they were kids, and ah, they're available again, and in these new uh, translations, and so on and so forth. And so very often it does start with young children. And then, you know, 30 years past, whatever it was, 
And then I came to them again, as I said to you just now, with all this that had come on water under the bridge for me, intellectual water under the bridge and so on and so forth. And I thought, well, it is time to redo them, you know, and to actually pinpoint. Goreski said he was really disappointed. He said this in, you know, in his lifetime, he was really disappointed that people did not see underneath what was going on, the, the point of it. He said that with particular reference to the films. Which yeah, were just watched and I really, Canada. really want to get to the movies because I, as an Italian, I think that that's what, I have a theory that those movies made a, the hugest disservice that could be made to um, his, as good as they are, because they're amazing. But, you know, the lies are always vested in nice clothes. Before we get there, and remind me if I forget, I'll make a note that we get to the movies. I know from what I read that you said you were fascinated in particular by his ability to transform enemies into people. And you say to read their hearts in, in ways in which only God can, and that this was what intrigued you. And so I think that in this regard, this is one part that I definitely want to talk about because we live in an ideological time where even 18 years old think of the other side as someone that is not worth talking to. And I think that there is, you know, this insight of Gwareski. So could you tell us more about that? And as a biographer, also, where you think that came from? Well, for him, I know where it came from. It came from his experiences during the war and the prison camps. We'll come to that. But that's exactly the uh, serious purpose of, uh, of, of his books. He's trying to get us to cast off all the isms, all the ideological isms, capitalism, socialism, whatever it is, Catholicism, uh, communism, whatever it is, to actually put them aside, which is no easy matter, because we're, you know, we're we all love causes and we all want to get involved in these things. But until you do that, you can't possibly reach what he regards to be the thing, which is conscience. That is, he believed innate in us all, and that so long as you can shelve all those things of the outer self, as he refers to it, and really, really sort of Detach yourself from all of that, and then you will hear the voice of your conscience. Now, in the books, of course, I mean, this was the cleverest thing he did, was to come up with Il Cristo. Uh, Il Cristo, the Christ figure on this three-meter crucifix above the high altar of the church in which Don Camilo, who is the priest, a priest with uh, hands like shovels, so he was as happy beating someone around the head for being a communist as he was talking to El Cristo, and he would talk to El Cristo. Now, occasionally there would be someone else in the, in the church, and they would never hear, they would hear what Don Camilo said, but they would never hear the voice. It is an inner voice. And Goreski got to that stage where he could talk to the inner voice. Now, when I came back to the books, the first thing I noticed was how on earth did he manage to come up with what Il Cristo would say, that would in every story, well, 154 of the 364 stories, will come up with the solution. Because he is peerless in terms of being, you know, Christ is peerless in terms of being able to sort out these terrible conflicts. Conflict, as you just said, is what the whole thing is about. Conflict between the communist mayor, Paponi, 
and the priest, Don Camilo. Yeah. And they are in this village in La Bassa, which I know you know. And on one side of the, of the village square of the piazza is the uh, People's Palace of the Communist Mayor. And on the other side is the church and the presbytery, uh, the Roman Catholic uh, village priest, Don Camilo. And it is all about their conflict. And Il Cristo, Il Cristo on, above the altar comes in. I mean, it's, it's conversations with God. To write conversations with God, it sounds like a really good idea, but you try it sometime. It is an impossible thing to do. And he managed it. And the reason he managed it was that he went to hell and back himself, which I can tell you about later. Yeah. And I want to, I, yes, we definitely want to hear about his hells. Uh, I think there's more than one. To give, I think, a little, some details that our audience might not have gotten from, you know, what's the setting of the story. So yes, these are all the short stories of this priest, the communist mayor, and they're set right after the end of the Second World War, as soon as Italy has become a republic. What is interesting, I think most of our audience has visited Italy and it's little, so it's not like, we're not talking about Rome, right? But so if you ever went to a little town, especially if you visited north of Florence, what you can imagine is that the same people that voted for Peppone, for the communist mayor, are the ones that are baptizing and confirming their kids in the Adiation church the following day. So it's one and the same people dealing with the same things, um, going to the same soccer match, right, that we were just talking about before we started yeah. this episode. And and that also provides an insight on like how that, you know, how those stories develop and how that conflict. But so, yes, you, if you can tell us more about his personal health, that I think that's time to do that. Okay. Okay. I mean, so we're talking about the stories starting, as you said, immediately post-war in the Dopaguera, do, do they call yeah. it? Am I pronouncing it pr- yes, correctly? Yes, perfect. Absolutely. Tinderbox of uh, problems in La Bassa. There were more communists in La Bassa than anywhere else in Italy. It had been the home of, the, of Mussolini. He had been born there. So the fascists, the communists. I mean, it was an absolute tinderbox after the war. But the story of how his own stories came about, you have to go back to 1943. Um, at this stage, Italy was in a, a unique position in the West, in that uh, Mussolini had made a treaty with Hitler, but had not entered the war until 1940. Anyway, Goreski was coming up. He was becoming an effective journalist, pretty serious in in many respects, less um, amusing than he uh, became later. And um, he lost it one night. He got drunk. He got on the the streets of Milan, I think. He started uh, waxing lyrical about the fascists, about Mussolini, and so on and so forth. And he was he was arrested. Uh, he, he he said later that he he got drunk because he'd heard that his brother had been killed on the Russian front, and so on and so forth. And they arrested him, and they they made him join the army and artillery uh, regiment up in the northwest. I think it is Alessandra. And then the armistice came because this is 1943 mm-hmm. at, at this stage. Now the armistice was basically the Allies saying to Italy, you know, you, you, you come, come with us and so on and so forth. And the Italians in Italy were given the choice. Either they continue to fight with them, with Germany, or they go to a prisoner of war camp. Now, that um, is a difficult decision to make because a lot of people felt if you went to prisoner of war camp, you were going there in order to feel safe, et cetera, et cetera. 
as far as Gorescu was concerned, it was a matter of conscience, and he was not going to fight the British and, and so on and so forth, and Americans, uh, the Allies, um, as they were. And so he he was stuck on a, uh, in a cattle trunk train and sent off for the next two years. He was shuttled to and fro in occupied Poland and Germany to various ghastly prison camps, concentration camps, you know, where Russian prisoners had been, you know, treated so badly that they died. And Italian prisoners were not subject to the Geneva Convention. So there was no, you know, they, the, the Germans could do what they wanted with, with them, basically. And he lost 60 pounds in, in about uh, oh, the first two or three months. You know, he was absolutely, you know, they got no food at all. Pea soup with a few peas in it, you know, that kind of thing. And he, he got uh, total, total despair. He spent his time writing, obviously. You know, never stop a writer writing. And in a situation like this, if you had anything that could make a mark, you would write. And he would write stories, and then he would go around the various huts, prison huts, and read them to fellow Italians. And they would be often quite sentimental things, making them feel good you know, uh, about home and trying to get them to remember to avoid thinking about the hellhole that they were in. And it was December of 43. It was, he'd written a Christmas story and it was particularly sentimental. It was about his son coming to visit him in, in prison. And it was really quite, quite sentimental. And a, a very highly politicized journalist who was an existentialist. Existentialism was a big thing in those days, Jean-Paul Sartre and all of that. And uh, it was a very uh, aggressive uh, philosophy, really, in many respects. Anyway, he threw a hand grenade into into, uh, Goreski's lap, basically. He said, you can't write this sort of crap, you know. Sentimentalism is the worst thing for the future of Italy, and you think you're doing something good because you're doing this. And, you know, it really shattered Goreski. He was weak, you know, with hunger. Uh, He was in despair in any case, and obviously he was missing home and so on and so forth. And he retreated and withdrew and, and really detached himself from everybody and everything. And then went through this business, which we mentioned earlier, of deciding to really get rid of all the ideologies, all the things that were putting him in conflict with people like uh, this journalist, and get back to something that was basic within. Now, that is actually exactly what happens when you practice Zen. So I know a little bit about this, and it is a very painful process. And he was doing it in the most ghastly situation. Anyway, I've got something here. He kept a diary during all of this, which is why I know so much about it. And I have a little thing to, to read to you. It seemed that he, he'd sort of reached breakdown time, but it was anything but that. It was absolutely an awakening. Can I read you just this? Uh, please, this please, shortest please. I've called it the awakening. He called it something else. Somebody was a prisoner within me. He was oppressed by my flesh and my fleshly habits, confined as if in a pressurized deep-sea diving suit. He looked out from his prison darkness, his eyes sharp, but the crystal of mind through which he drilled his gaze was clouded with the greasy vapors of conventional living. His heart was locked in mine. He had to adjust the beat of this heart to match the heavy throb of my heart. His voice was clear and sweet, 
but overwhelmed by the hard, clumsy timbre of mine. Someone was a prisoner of my true self, and my thick rind oppressed him, but now he has escaped from his prison. I bring in another piece a little later. One day I was walking on this godforsaken sand, and I was tired, and I dragged my bones, heavy with nostalgia, when suddenly my steps felt miraculously light, and the sky appeared to me unusually deep, as if, as I watched the world from behind the dirty glass of a window, that window, yes, suddenly opened wide, and I saw the smallest details and the smallest things never seen before, like a new world, and everything was complete in all its details, and I could hear even the slightest rustling, as if my ears were uncorked, and I heard voices, unknown words, and it seemed to me that it was the voice of things, but it was my voice, the voice of my prisoner. I turned and saw that I had come out of myself. I had pushed myself out of my fleshly shell. I was free. Now, that is him absolutely changed, a changed man. It was on that basis that the voice within became Il Cristo in the stories. Wow. You know, it reminds me, we've had a conversation lately um, during our anniversary, and I think the videos will be uploaded by the time we speak. And um, our program director were talking about the person and how the person is not the labels we, we give them. And I think that some of us are very, very aware of this, but then we yeah. end up having those, some of them, which we we need, right? So it sounded to me like his his breakdown, as you call those, like this moment of revelation is him getting rid of the remaining labels. Yeah, absolutely. The function aspect of his self, that we all know each other by what we do. Not, not anymore. Not as far as Goreski is concerned. That is no longer the case. And when he went back to his comrades in the, in the sheds, in the huts, it was as one mind, one body, one mind with them. And he was writing differently. He started to use allegory and he started to make fun of the Germans. And the Germans, when they came to actually watch his productions, uh, didn't realize that uh, what they were laughing at was themselves. He began to see this was a real change, not only in how he saw himself and his religious convictions and so on and so forth, but in how he wrote as well. Yeah. And that gets me, I think, I mean, you mentioned two things that are worth just stopping there, but I think from here we could go to talk of like why he might have been disappointed about the movies. And one thing that comes to mind immediately is that an easy conclusion one could draw from his experience and what the fact that he was in prison is like, oh, well, he just realized that everyone is human. So doesn't matter whether you're a communist or whether you're a Catholic or whether you're a Republican or whether, because ultimately you're a person. And I think this is probably what the movies go around because yes, this is what he believes, but before we can get there, all these people need to go through what he went through, which is not instead what happens. Like that the communist remained the communist and hating, you know, God and the church. And maybe, you know, what I see in the movie is that the, the, the way Pepone is described makes you almost love him uh, and think, oh, it's probably the best mayor I would want. Is that what he didn't like about them, do you think? Well, he, he thoroughly believed that the conscience was there, that the inner voice was there for everybody. It was just a question of it being covered up, veiled, as he put it, 
by all these ideologies and so on and so forth. And in the in the novels and in, in these ma- many hundreds of stories, Paponi gradually Paponi is the communist, okay, who we're supposed to think is evil, and all the American translations of, of, of the original books made, made him out to be like that, you know, because they, they had McCarthyism, they had all this going on at that time, and we had Cuba crisis all going on at the same time as all this was happening, but gradually. Occasionally, very amusingly, he will stop his rhetoric, uh, Peponi. I mean, what Gruesky wanted to do was to stop rhetoric politics in Italy, actually, which is like, how on earth do you do that? That is a huge undertaking. But occasionally, Peponi will just sort of lapse into a, a Zen-like state and notice how his voice is sounding to the people he's announcing everything to all the time, his rhetoric, you know, and the meaningless of it. Well, what on earth is he talking about? And and that's all the time Goreski is showing us that it's there. It's only a question of finding it. It's only a question of forgetting that you're a communist uh, crazy, you, you know, and or whatever it is, a capitalist crazy, whatever it is, doesn't matter, and getting back to that conscience. It is no longer just your prejudiced conscience, but the conscience we all share that is innate within. And more than ever, there's some wonderful stories. I mean, The Light That uh, Never Goes Out, I think it's called, something like that, in Don Camilo's Dilemma. I I can give you a list if you want to add add these things. Those are all about conscience, and and they're so striking, and they often involve a child as well, children as, you know, since Wordsworth did his poems of intimations of immortality and so on and so forth, are always in touch before the oafs like us who have lived a life of getting our ideologies together and so on and so forth, have covered it all up. You know, it's the child that has contact with the heaven lies about it about us in our infancy. You know, that's that's the idea. So, yeah, I mean, he, he's totally positive and he believes that we all have it within us. No, that that for sure. And I know I've I've talked to you about Buczaczewski, um and his writings about conscience. I'm, I'm going to, you know, tell him about this episode because I think, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things that somehow what he's describing from the natural law analysis of it, Guareski is saying with the stories. My question was, what was that the movies did not represent well? That made him. That's what he felt they didn't represent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned about one of these moments where Pepon has this haha, and I think it's uh, one of the sweetest is when they have to, you say, children bring up this reality, but also with old people. And I think one of the most moving uh, episodes is when there is the the funeral, then they need to bury the local teacher. Christina, the old lady, would probably, you know, I'm guessing might have reminded Guadalajara of his own, like, was drafted I'm after, sure. after I'm his sure. own There mom. are a number of those stories about the teacher. Yeah, go on. Yeah, and the teacher Christina wants to be, well, a very, probably a better storyteller than I am, but I find it moving that the, the old teacher Christina, as it's true in my own village, you know, I'm not as old as Guareski, but she has taught everyone, right? So she has taught Pepone and she has taught Don Camillo. She has taught all the kids and like all the older, and she wants to be buried with her monarchic flag. And uh, after Pepone promises on the deathbed that he's going to do it, and then the decision needs to be taken by the 
the town, uh, the town hall, and they disagree and they say things along the lines, actually, of what this guy said to Guareschi in prison, right? That this is a nostalgic sentiment and history is moving forward and we cannot respect this kind of... But then Pepone is very funny because he says that as the mayor, he should respect the will of the majority. But since he's also the head of the communists and the communists are the real ruler, he is going to do what he wants. And so he's going to bury the teacher with the monarchic, with the, the king's flag, because he respects her more dead than all of them alive. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. it's, uh, well, I don't you, know. You tell it very well. You tell it very well. Did I? Well, I I know. I think it's impossible to tell it well. I'm very disappointed that the movies do not have the subtitles. Because um, There is uh, talk of other movies. Um, uh, Alberto, who I, I, I'm constantly in touch with, he, he is now the estate. Hureski himself died in 68. Tells me that, 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 that there's a constant sort of push them but okay. I think well I would of- volunteer for that you know yeah. I would no, help no, yeah no. definitely yeah talking about this nostalgia right so he's been accused in the camp which by the way uh, my great ankle shared the prison with him and there's a beautiful oh. Don Camilo story about that of something that happened but you know maybe maybe we should we would need a second episode for that I'll tell you for sure it was a very common situation right that of most Italians to have had it in their family, someone, and also to have families divided, the fascists, the communists, the people that fought mm. on, on different fronts. And I was discussing this aspect with our president, Professor Ignatius, a sociologist. And I did throw out the guess. It's like, is it possible that today we live in an ideologically divided world? Because differently from what happened then, we never struggled together. I know this is pure speculation, but like, do you think that part of why people could still remain friends was that somehow things affected them all, right? So there was the bombing of the town or there was a flood that, you know, and everyone needed to work together. together. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do. And it's very interesting to me that Goreski makes Peponi and Don Camillo ex-partisans. They were members of the resistance, the Italian resistance. Now, in the Italian resistance, like in any resistance, it didn't matter what ideology you had. You were you were absolutely bound together in one cause, which was to kill Germans. You know, and at the end of the war, all of that finished. And the Dopacuera, the, the uh, you know, what happened, the bloody first few months after the end of the war in Labasa, where priests were killed, industrialists were killed, communists were, were killing the fascists and so on and so forth. Suddenly, that all of that broke away because the war had ended. So the war had been binding together and advancing the values of totally disparate uh, political figures in the resistance. And suddenly, that was gone. And you know what was there? So that's a a really important point. To you, you have to put yourself in the mind of what Goreski was about at that time. At the same time. You have to understand, and mainly due to Il Cristo and the dialogues with him, that you know that this, what is said in these stories, is good for all times and all places. Yeah, which is why, you know, I will make a push for students to read Don Camillo in here for Absolutely. our reading groups, because I think that's... It's good the- for wokery as well. He, he, you know, just as he saw after the Marshall uh, 
what do they call it? Um, they gave billions to uh, Europe after the war from America. Yeah, the Marshall Plan. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and immediately Gureski was concerned that this would lead to consumerism, which of course it did. You know, the, everything was, it was the economic miracle that went on well into the uh, 60s and 70s. But he was one of the first to see where consumerism would lead, which was to the destroying of resources, which is where we are now. Yeah. You know, and so you begin to, and he saw all of these things. I mean, he was so far seeing, but that is one of the reasons why it is for all times and all places. You just see this thing, you learn so much about humanity, really, by reading him. Yeah. Somehow, based on what you just said, would you agree that? I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Italian philosopher Augusto del Noce that we've been reading quite a lot here lately. In the comment that he underlines in this breakdown moment about the nostalgic feelings and also what you say, his attention to consumerism, he somehow had already understood that the wrong assumption that we had in the Christian, let's say, quote unquote, Christian West was that, yes, we were moving toward progress, right? Regardless what was next was better. Uh, there was nothing to be kept from the past. So it wasn't just reaction, being reactionary was wrong, but like the, the whole idea of tradition and of things from the past was, did he, was it, because I, I read him as being someone that absolutely noticed it. Would you agree that that's? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 absolutely, 100%. I mean, he, you couldn't be a monarchist, you know, but it, the monarchy had gone, I mean, he deposed in 1946, I think it was, wasn't it? immediately after the yeah. war, really. And uh, so it was pointless. Candido, the magazine that he wrote all these stories in and was editor of, started out as a monarchist uh, magazine. You know, um, it was just described as such, at least. But he was definitely a traditionalist. First of all, he was for unity. Unity was his whole thing against conflict. And the uniting of Italy and Garibaldi in that whole time, and uh, was that the 18th century or 19th century? He'd look back all the time, and you'll see references all the time through the stories to those great days. And that was like, as far as he was concerned, that was the unconscious area of Italy. And yeah, everything welled up from that. I mean, you know, he was a great one for welling things up from, from what had gone by in the past. And I think that he saw the future because really he saw the thing as a whole anyway. It wasn't a chrono you know, chronological linear uh, thing time. It, it seemed like it was all one to him. And, and he understood at a different level. This is the thing about Tereski. He understood things at a different level. You know, uh, he really did. To be able to sustain that dialogue with Il Cristo, people don't even, have never remarked that that is an extraordinary thing. But you, as I said to you before, you try and write a dialogue with Christ, it's almost impossible. You know, you can't get into the frame of mind of someone who is not of this world of time and space and cause and effect and all these things. You know, you've got to be above that somehow. And he manages to do it without making it sound like everything is predestined, you know, that that somehow, you, you know, that Don Quilo has, no, has to follow suit. No, he doesn't. He's free to do it or not to do it. And El Cristo knows whether he's going to do it or not to do it, which is another thing, you know. I mean, Varesky never leaves anything alone. He takes it always to its logical conclusion. And freedom for Varesky is freedom from ideology. 
It is not freedom to do what you want to do. Oh, it's freedom from no, ideology, and that is crucial to what is going on in these these stories. Yeah, this reminds that's, me of a well, that's why I, I was doing these stories. Was that one more than anything? Actually, there is something. There is a passage in your um, in the article that I just from you know where I got to know you. Uh, if I may read now, and that's something you say about freedom, uh, the freedom that he cared about. So that freedom is not licensed became Il Cristo's message too. In his stories, freedom is a wheel freed from all that usually conditions our responses, marks out our conduct, speech, and thought as adversarial, and shows that we are anything but free. In Comrade Penelope, Don Camillo says to Peppone, I don't yearn for the sort of freedom you go on about. Because being a communist, the mayor can never truly break free from ideology to follow his inner voice. Guareschi sought to persuade his readers to be better than the political ideologies they serve, to let go of the ideas that drag us around with them. He wanted to awaken his reader to the reality of life on earth, which is of such infinite interconnectedness, interdependence, and latent possibility that any ideological template or ism, communism, capitalism, socialism, or Catholicism, will, like an ill-fitting gasket in the mechanic Pepone's workshop, inevitably prove an inadequate interface. I think this was perfect description to me, which maybe would also explain why Guareschi was, you know, it was in prison, but then it's not that his political career was any better afterwards. So could you, would you want to tell us more about that? About the prison? No, about like how he was never friends of power. He was not satisfied with Italian government after the war. No, indeed, yeah. indeed. You're absolutely right. What you're saying is that he, he was he had conflict with absolutely every ideology, socialism, communism, the Christian Democrats who he got helped get into power in, in 1948, everybody. And for the reasons we've been talking about, okay? He did not, he wanted, he didn't want any of those things to drag us down. He didn't want any of those ideologies to get in the way of conscience, of finding our conscience. But so what was uh, he for? If, if, so what was he for? What was he? Ah, yeah, well, well th th this is the interesting thing. In 1954, I think it was, he was arrested because he had published in Candido pictures of Gasperi, the um, former Prime Minister, um, Christian Democrat Prime Minister of Italy, letters supposedly signed by de Gasperi instructing the Allies to bomb the outskirts of Rome in order to, oh, there was some reason I can't remember I, 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 exactly. And, and this was, of course, a huge hiatus. Now, this was really the first, it was the second time actually, but it was, a, it was the second time only that. Koreski had attacked a man, an individual, mm. as opposed to an idea or an attitude. Now, that is absolutely crucial to understanding him. Had he kept to what he, he should have been doing, this was his big mistake as far as I'm concerned. He was in prison for this. They never proved, the court never proved whether the letters were authentic or not. They said, we can't prove either way. But uh, as far as we're concerned, you've uh, libeled the guy and you're going to go to prison. And he went to prison for another 13 months, taking the same knapsack with him yeah. that he had had. He also didn't trip. want to appeal, right? He decided not to appeal. He didn't want to appeal, that's right. He refused to appeal. 
You absolutely refuse to appeal. You're going to do it to me? L listen, if he, if he was here today, we would see just how strong a personality he had. He had an amazing personality. He decided, oh, I don't want to give him any more fun and games. You know, I'm going to go and do it. And it, it absolutely, it, it basically finished him. I mean, he lived on for another, when he came out, mm -hmm. just over 10 years. But I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was the end of the man. But he came out and he went and he wrote this, he wrote this story called, I always call it in the bathroom. I don't know what, I can't remember right now what it's called, but he goes into the bathroom and he, and he talks to not El Cristo this time, but his other self, exactly the same sort of situation, his conscience, if you like. And he said, I've come to the conclusion that it's not enough to say no to all these ideologies. It's, it's really just not enough to do that. You've got to be for something as well. And he spent the rest of his very few years being for something. And that included what I described earlier about the environmentalism showing uh, how it was going to come out of the consumerism and so on and so forth. It, it, it uh, was about love being stronger than politics. It was about positive things like that that he was then writing about. So what shatters me, I, he worked so hard during his life. He wrote so quickly and so many things. Or his, his output was absolutely extraordinary. And for him to be shunted out at the end by the government or by the courts or whatever in that way, I think is just heinous, really. I, I just, it killed, it killed a guy. We lost an awful lot as a result of that. Yeah. I'm proud to say that my dad collected all his published work. So I know that there is a huge library waiting for me now when I go home for Christmas and like see what I could steal and read next because he's a patrimony. But also we didn't touch on the fact that you satire. Do you think it's worth saying something about that? About what? About the fact that it was a, use a satirical, uh, satirical, say what, why using satire is that, and is that dead? Or is that still our, our best instrument? Unfortunately, it has been dead in, in this country. I talk about the UK here. But uh, for, for some time, there is a lot of attacking ideologies, mainly attacking socialism. Here, um, well, we know Kureski attacked everybody. I don't know. I, 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 I just think that it's time for people to recognize just how important he was. I don't think that even Italians understood how important he was. He sold many more books in America and the UK and in France in particular, where he was dearly loved, than, than he did in Italy. And I don't think the Italians uh, took him seriously, mainly because, of course, I mean, they were, what's it, I was, he, he, he felt humour was, was the way, you know, sweeten the pill, whatever. He, I'm going to read another piece here. Yeah, just, please. Yeah. If we had a sense of humour, we would not have put feathers in the hats of our soldiers and we wouldn't have allowed our soldiers to leave for the war with guns made in 1908 or with rayon shirts. Italians, I urge you to humour. We have been drunk with rhetoric for centuries and this is because we lack a sense of humour. If politicians all possessed a sense of humour, trouble, trouble, there'd be no more wars in the world. He was out to transform the DNA of a nation and no nation likes to hear that from one of their own. And I yeah. think that's why they put him in prison, to be honest. Yeah, it's possible. Another thing that comes to mind is that some people might have taken him for granted. You know, like having shared and having 
lived in places that might remind one so much of the places it's described, you might come to a conclusion that there is nothing for you to learn there. And so somehow a foreign eye can see more and is, is more ready to see, to pick on some details that, yeah, that yeah, we are, I think we're not. There's, there's something in that. There's something in that. I think that the French love, loved him because they love Asterix de Gaulle and they're the home of Asterix de Gaulle. And so they took it in. But I think I read somewhere that the first royalty statement he had from France was for sale of 800,000 hardcover books. I mean, he's supposed to have sold 23 million copies throughout the world oh. in his time, not a lot in Italy. And of course, as soon as he went into prison, he wasn't allowed to publish anything more in Italy. He was publishing in UK and USA, but not in Italy. Well, I think there might be a comeback precisely because of that, because now this becomes stories no more of our grandfathers, but of great, like, there is probably there is more to learn. As a last, you know, as a last question, so I want to be respectful of your time, even though I could talk about Don Camilo and the stories and uh, um, the people of the little, the little village forever uh, was, you know, for our audience, you know, besides the students that will benefit from me telling them, you know, from what book we're going to start. But for those listening, if they want to approach this author or Don Camilo's word, what would be the best the best way to start, and who's the ideal audience for this? This is this is terribly important because do not expect to be able to pick up any one of the books that I'm publishing at the moment and think you're into this. It's, I've, I've, you know, be satisfied with the little world of Don Camilo, which for the first time in 2013 we published in full because the original publishers were Catholic publishers and there was a lot cut out because they thought it was going to offend their Catholic readers and so on and so forth. And in fact, uh, Alberto uh, pulled back all the rights in about 1980 and 1990, sometime like that, so that when I approached him, it was all free because there hadn't been any books on account of this, let's not say, sensorial editing, you know? Yeah, that's a whole different ballgame. Interesting. So just read The Little World of Don Camillo and enjoy it. Put it by your bedside. I mean, they're all stories. They're all anthologies. So stories that you can read before going to bed, before going to sleep in bed, which is what I was doing ill, you know, 60 years ago now. Um, Read that one. It's exceptionally well translated uh, by the translator that I that I got through uh, a competition I ran here in, in the UK. And the guy's a poet, and he's very, very intelligent. He saw immediately the themes that were important, and we worked ex- extremely well together, and he did the whole book. So there is a seamlessness about it as well, which is nice. And I, I write a preface to all these books, just to put your short preface, just to put the reader into this slightly deeper frame of mind so that they'll love the, you know, the, the stuff at the fun fair when Don Camilo is trying to beat uh, and the strength machine <laughs> Proponi and so on. And and you can see this is the West against the East and, and that is great, you know, but so you can guide you into the, and, and at the end of that book, I, I do a, a biography of maybe 10 pages, something like that. So you get, it's a good way in that book. And then just take it through. The next one, Don Camilo and his flock, is slightly different. But give it a go. Just give it a go. It's more about the other people in La Bassa. And the characters are fantastic. And they're unforgettable stories. And then the next one, again, 
Don Camillo and Paponi gets very much into his relationship with Il Cristo and uh, so on and so forth. And then it goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. I've got 10 books out. I've just signed a contract with Alberto Kureski for two more. So we're going to go on. We're going to do all the stories in the end. And also, if I could say, you know, I know that a lot of our listeners love traveling to Italy. I can promise them that if they read the stories, they will understand the people and the family stories behind them so much better. It will give that it will give it a completely different taste. You know, even when there's a foggy day, it will just look different. Or when you will be looking at a river, you will look at it differently. And I don't want to say more because, you know, they, uh, but. You know, I I can totally relate to those stories for sure. So for those that want to know more, you know, the books that we have, we are including all the links, not only to the magazine and the article you wrote, but to the books and how they can get them. I really look forward to having another chance to talk to that you. Is, that, that, is the, that is the one I was talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The complete little word of Don Camilo. Yeah. I think they should all start from there. I completely agree with you. So thank you for your time. And please, right. if you ever you know happen to travel to the United States, we would love to have you stop here. You know, and 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 due to, to London, let me know. Thank you. Thank you very much, Piers. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.